Hello, I am Heather Allure, Professor of Internal Medicine in the Section of Geriatrics at the Yale School of Medicine, as well as Professor of Biostatistics at the Yale School of Public Health. I'm here with Dr. David Rubin, the Archstone Foundation Chair and Professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. We will be discussing key points from the AGS Aging Learning Collaborative clinical and translational learning curriculum that focuses on the science of multiple chronic conditions. As co-chair of the research design module, Dr. Rubin contributed a presentation on pragmatic clinical trials. Thank you, Dr. Rubin, for joining me. And I wonder if you'd tell us a little about yourself. Oh, sure. I'm Dave Rubin. Uh, I am a, a geriatrician and um, mostly an implementation science researcher. Uh, I've had a lot of experience with both traditional clinical trials and uh, more recently pragmatic trials. They are a lot of fun and keep me up at night. Well, that's great. Maybe you can start off the conversation by telling us about some of your, your feelings on the differences between traditional and pragmatic trials, especially in the context of multiple chronic conditions. Sure. It turns out everybody thinks that pragmatic trials are a recent addition to research design. But uh, in fact, uh, some of the articles that I used in preparing this go back to 1967. So they've been around a long time, and uh, in part because um, they've gotten a lot more attention of late. Now, the best way to think about a traditional or what they use the term explanatory clinical trials and pragmatic trials relates to you'd like to have both. You'd like to have a, a traditional trial to really determine efficacy and a pragmatic trial to determine effectiveness. So they would be sequential in a sense. So the traditional trials confirm a physiological or a clinical hypothesis. This is kind of under the best conditions possible. Whereas a pragmatic trial informs a clinical or policy decision by providing evidence for the adoption of the intervention into real world clinical practice. So in a sense, uh, pragmatic trials, uh, ideally, and if budgets were not uh, constrained, uh, would always follow an explanatory trial because you wouldn't do a trial of something that didn't work under ideal conditions. So we know that there have been many successful explanatory trials that never really get incorporated into clinical practice or healthcare systems. Do you see this as a failure of moving to this implementation or pragmatic clinical trial stage? Well, the pragmatic clinical trials are easier to go from trial phase into actually incorporating in practice because they're, they're conducted in real-world settings with real-world clinicians and real-world staff. So the, the leap from a pragmatic trial into clinical practice should be less than the leap from a explanatory trial into clinical practice. Well, that's kind of a nice segue into part of the planning that might go into a pragmatic clinical trial. In your presentation, you provided some information on the pragmatic explanatory continuum indicator summary, typically known as PRESI-2, 
And it's a, been a helpful tool for planning pragmatic clinical trials. But the diagram and criteria may not be familiar to our listeners. Could you provide maybe some examples of how you've used it when designing one of your own pragmatic clinical trials? Sure. The PREC2 construct is really uh, nine components around a wheel. These include eligibility, who's selected for the trial, recruitment, how they're recruited into the trial, setting where the trial is being done, organization, the expertise and resources needed to deliver the intervention, flexibility in how the intervention is delivered, flexibility in uh, adherence to make sure that participants adhere to the intervention, follow-up, how closely, primary outcomes, how relevant they are to participants, and then the primary analysis, whether uh, all data are included. And this wheel goes from uh, one to five, five being the most pragmatic. And um, for each of these, you consider for the individual trial how far out you can be on that number five. And to say that any trial is entirely pragmatic or entirely explanatory is probably overstating the case. They all have some more or less pragmatic features to them. And you have to make some decisions. I have my own kind of um, rubric in terms of what I think is inviolate. And I think um, where, where I think, you know, in real world settings is truly a, uh, and using real world staff is more or less an inviolate principle of the Precy tool to try to adhere to as much as possible. There are other things uh, such as adherence and fidelity that I think um, I tend to dip more towards the traditional trial because of the, the simple fact is if people aren't receiving the intervention, you're not really testing the intervention. Well, I think that's very helpful. And I wonder, you know, since our theme is multiple chronic conditions, maybe we can touch on uh, eligibility and recruitment because in your presentation on Stride, it was really quite evident how potential participants should have uh, one or more of the risk factors. And so this fits very nicely into uh, the multiple chronic condition theme. Can you talk about how people might be selecting those if they were looking at different sorts of, you know, we know so many explanatory trials use chronic conditions as exclusion criteria. Can you give us your thoughts on on how one might do this? Sure. In contrast to uh, traditional trials, uh, you want the recruitment population in pragmatic trials to be messy. <laughs> you, you don't want to exclude people uh, for comorbidity as much as possible. Now, obviously, if you're doing a study that requires people to fill out questionnaires or something like that, and they have dementia, it, it may not work. Or if they speak a, a language that is uh, very seldom used and uh, you don't have translators for that, you know, that's another example of an exclusion. But in, in general, pragmatic trials try to include as many people as possible, particularly those who would be eligible for the intervention in real-world settings and after the uh, the evidence is in. 
For example, in uh, the other trial that I use as a um, example in the slideshow is the decare study. And the only people, virtually the, the major criteria for being excluded is if that you wouldn't have received the intervention anyhow, because you're living in a nursing home or you're on hospice, that you wouldn't be eligible for the intervention anyhow, even in practice settings. And so would you find um, that it is maybe useful to see, say, for adherence, if there were certain combinations of chronic conditions that may have made it harder for individuals to adhere to the intervention or be able to be measured on the primary outcome? Well, the question, that's a great question. And the question is how much of that is the planning going into the study and how much of it is the post hoc analysis? In other words, you, you certainly want to exclude people who couldn't, you, you know, in, who were going into the study who couldn't complete the outcome measures. But on the other hand, you might, once they're included and once they receive the intervention and the study outcomes are measured, you might look at, number one, how well the different subgroups performed in terms of the efficacy of the intervention, and number two, uh, how well they performed in terms of completing measures. So uh, th that's a good question is, is how much of this do you do in, up front as exclusionary criteria and how much in the back end as post hoc analysis? You know, I think one of the points you touched on in the, the pressy is that uh, flexibility in delivery. And since you've um, run some very large trials, stride and decare among them, where you were using cluster designs, there must have been uh, some variation in the way the pragmatic trial was fitting into care delivery uh, across all those different sort of uh, sites and settings. Can you say a few words about that? You know, often with explanatory trials, they want such tight monitoring. I think this may be a, a real difference in the way people conceive of a pragmatic clinical trial. And it's attention. It's always attention is how much wiggle room do you, do you give? In, in these trials, we, we tried to give as much wiggle room as possible, realizing that uh, uh, all politics and all cultures are local. But on the other hand, insisting that the core principles of the intervention are maintained. That's actually a, a good challenge for investigators who have an intervention that they want to test, are what are the core principles of that intervention? If you don't have them, then it, the intervention isn't the intervention. I think that's very helpful for people in the planning stage. And that kind of leads to then the elements of follow-up and the primary outcome you know, some trials, the pragmatic trials are trying to capture primary outcomes uh, through electronic health records or standardly collected data in nursing homes or other settings. And so that follow-up interval is based on when those uh, visits would occur. What has been your experience, and do you have any advice on follow-up and, and if you should have standardly recorded outcomes through you know, the regular record system or add-on for that's a trial-specific outcome? 
Oh, yes. Well, this is one of the vulnerabilities of pragmatic trials. If you're, you're looking at your outcomes, you want to make sure that they're collected correctly. And indeed, uh, one of the, one of the liabilities of using non-research staff, including clinical, uh, staff to collect and enter data, say, uh, data that are in the electronic health record is that they've had no training and, uh, they may be, may be making things up. You, you never know. Uh, so this is one of the areas where I tend to just personally come down on the side of having that much more standardized. And in, in, in both of, um, of these studies, uh, we relied on, uh, data that were collected specifically for the study rather than just trying to abstract data from, from the medical records. It depends upon what your outcomes are. For some, uh, some you don't even need the electronic health record. You can just get it from claims data. But it really depends if you're, if you're measuring things like, uh, functional status, uh, those things are not captured well in the electronic health records. So, uh, or anything that is a patient reported outcome measure, uh, prom. Those are things you're going to have to really um, collect yourself and not rely on existing data. It's kind of a trap that people think, geez, you know, every, we're recording so much these days that all we have to do is dig into the electronic health record. But what's collected and how it's collected may not be sufficient. I think that's very true. Do you want to talk, uh, maybe just give a little insights, you know, over the length of a trial when, when working with older adults and especially those with multiple chronic conditions, they may have met eligibility to um, participate in the trial. They're uh, recruited and either they're individually consented or they follow whatever the consent procedure is for that trial. But over the course of the trial, they may be developing uh, additional geriatric syndromes or other chronic conditions. Can you say anything about your experience where essentially the population you recruit looks actually different in their profiles by the time you're getting that primary outcome? Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that right now in the uh, DCARE study. They look very different because they're dead. Uh, we're losing about 12 to 15 percent per year, uh, in the population. And in, indeed, um, you know, these, particularly with, uh, multiple chronic conditions, they have high, uh, mortality and high morbidity and they, they drop out because of other illnesses, et cetera. And, uh, one of the things that, uh, I learned from the statisticians is that this is a, a good reason for collecting data in multiple time points so that you have data uh, that can be carried forward. Uh, so that you have data on, on pretty much everyone unless they, they drop out or die very early. But um, these kind of longitudinal assessments of, of the outcomes can be very, very helpful. But yeah, this happens. You're, you're dealing with people who have multiple chronic conditions. I think that, you know, there you're touching on that primary analysis and uh, to what extent all the data is included. Are there scenarios where you might find that you wouldn't want to include all the data? Can you give us any examples where, where that might be the case? I would think only if you're masochistic. 
You know, it's you, you want to use every bit of data that you can that, as long as it's valid data. You know, it, it may be that some data aren't are no longer valid because you have a different reporter and that might not be something that was a self-report that a proxy may be giving you the answers to and the data may not be valid because you're getting a different responder answering the questions. But if the data are valid, I recommend using as much as you can with it. Otherwise, you tend to have high dropout rates and a lot of missing data. One of the things that I've been uh, working with uh, some people on recently is trials that were being run pre-COVID, during COVID, and in this period where COVID is less severe but still existent, even looking at you have the same sort of treatment effect in almost these three periods. So sometimes there's other analytic ways if there was uh, some large shift that may be uh, contributing to the change in the effectiveness of the intervention, especially in trials where elements may have been, had to be dropped, such as home visits or a number of things that were excluded, say, during COVID or, or other situations. So, so I think working with your uh, biostatistical team can generally address all these unusual occurrences. Yeah, and COVID is a very interesting example there because it can affect two things. One is how the intervention is delivered, and the second is how responses are collected. And for each of those, you can have people in a trial that the entire time they were in the trial was pre-COVID. So you're operating in those conditions. You have people who recruited after COVID started, and they got all of their care and all of their outcome measures assessed after COVID. And then to to boot, you've got some people who are enrolled pre-COVID and continue to receive the intervention post-COVID and whatever changes there were in data collection. A lot of the data collection in COVID times has moved from in-person to virtual, and you can't just necessarily assume that they're identical. Some of the questions, particularly in multi-morbidity, you know, for example, for cognitive testing, if you're doing cognitive testing, it is different over the phone than it is in person. As well as functional testing. Correct, yes. So although there's no perfect pragmatic clinical trial, as as you've discussed here and in your presentation summary, could you share with us some of the advantages you found using a pragmatic approach in STRIDE and DCARE? Some of the advantages, once again, in real-world settings, these are, are people who, if the trial ended and you could magically have the results the next day and they were glowingly positive, the, the funding source for these people just moves from the research grant to the uh, health system. So it really sets up things for implementation in real-world practice if the study was conducted in, in real-world setting. The second is a fewer exclusionary criteria. So uh, you don't have to kind of be searching for the, the right person for the study, pretty much all comers. And uh, I've also found that, at least in the studies that we have done, the institutions, they've, they've had to contribute some money towards implementing the pragmatic trial, whether that's a share of costs for the clinical personnel who are involved or space or support for them. 
And I think that buy-in is really important. I think it, it's hard to get, but once a health system uh, or a practice is, has bought into saying, you know, we're part of this, um, they're willing to commit resources. And I think that's very valuable. It, it's also much more integrated into the fabric of what they're supposed to do. Some of the sites where we've done these pragmatic trials are not particularly academic, and they've been committed as well. Yeah, I think that really fits into the organization aspect of the Pressy 2 diagram. And I think we can forget at times that the healthcare system and administrators of them are stakeholders, especially when looking at pragmatic clinical trials. Could you say a couple words about how you've interacted with uh, organizational stakeholders to get some buy-in? You have to have a mole, somebody on the inside. Uh, for the investigator coming in from outside, you're just another stranger who's asking them for something. And uh, I, I've been incredibly fortunate in that the people who who I've known, who I've recruited to be site principal investigators have been phenomenal. They have been incredibly integrated and respected into their, not only their academic institutions, but also the clinical operations. And they are the ones who really carry the water. They have been so great. And they're the people who the uh, people in the C-suite or the administrators who are gonna have to commit resources see every day. So in many respects, that is a local phenomenon and that getting uh, local people who are really well respected in the institution is kind of one of the most important things that uh, a principal investigator can do. Well, I think this has been really helpful. In closing, is there any advice you could share with listeners who'd like to design a pragmatic clinical trial for persons with multiple chronic conditions? Uh, other than starting on antidepressants early. <laughs> Not anti-anxiety medications? Th- those two, you maybe get a little of both. Um, no, I got to tell you, they are a lot of fun. Uh, they are a lot of fun, but they are big. And the commitment that you need to make as a, as a principal investigator is large because there will be uh, even perhaps more so than in the case of traditional trials, unforeseen things that'll happen. It's interesting in uh, several of the studies that the ownership of the clinical operation changed and the uh, priorities might be different. So there are going to be the, the daily headaches, the daily worries. But on the other hand, when you see healthcare systems changing in response to an intervention that you have helped design, it's it's impressive. It's impressive and, and it's fun. And um, the, the big surprise is at the end of the rainbow when you finish the study. The thing you want to be able to do is to say at the end of the day, we've given this intervention a fair trial. I think that's wonderful. And it's really, I think what all researchers want is to really have their, uh, their interventions used to benefit people. And this is, I think, one of the final steps in that uh, move towards implementing throughout healthcare systems that are really the way practices get embedded. Agree 100%. You summed it up very nicely. 
Well, thank you very much, Dr. Rubin. And I think that'll wrap up our section on pragmatic clinical trials. Thank you. Thank you.